It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week beginning Monday the 5th of February. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. We just got the numbers in, and perhaps to nobody's surprise, the sitting president, Joseph Biden, wins the South Carolina primary. It's another election in Pakistan, but the mood is subdued in a country recovering from its worst economic and political crisis in decades. Paris voters supported a proposal from the city's mayor to triple parking charges for large, heavy SUVs. My name is Sho Chu, and I'm the CEO of TikTok. Have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? Senator, I'm Singaporean. No. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, you have blood on your hands. The United States has launched strikes on targets in Syria and Iraq in response to a drone attack last weekend on a U.S. military base. Suspended institutions, that's a storm at the Northern Ireland Assembly and associated things, are being back up and running. To help me try to figure out what other than Taylor Swift should lead the news this week, I'm joined by Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Jess, do you have a good weekend? I did, thank you. Very good. And Chloe Hadjimatheo is here too, a torch reporter who's led a lot of our coverage of the Middle East. Chloe, you have a good weekend as well? I did, thank you. Very good. Thank you very much. And I'm also delighted to say we're joined by Bronwyn Maddox, who's the Director and Chief Executive of Chatham House. If you were listening on Friday, you'll have heard me talking to David Miliband, the former UK Foreign Secretary, and mentioning the speech that Bronwyn gave, the annual address of the director of Chatham House, and it was about double standards, about the charge that is being made in many parts of the world against the West in its double standards, in the way in which it meets the world. Bronwyn, as you can see, that talk prompted a lot of discussion. It's very good to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my great pleasure. Thanks. On that basis, will you go first? Will you give us your, your long story short, what you think should really be leading the news this week? I think we should be arguing that Britain and the US should get more help from Egypt and Saudi Arabia in their response to the Houthis. Bronwyn, thanks. Let, let's get into that. It's a really interesting and obviously difficult story to cover, not least because it's the, it's, it's the story at the moment about non-participation, about inaction, and how do you move that into action. Chloe, what's your story for the week? I hope you're happy now. Who's to blame for the acid attack in South London last Wednesday? That just gets thornier and thornier, isn't it, the more you hear about that story. Jess? I'd like to talk about Britain's adult ADHD services and why they are in need of attention. Well, OK, that's a wide and very different range of stories. Um, Bronwyn, can we start with yours, though? Can we start with the Houthis? But can we do that in the context of what you were talking about 10 days or so ago, about double standards? Um, firstly, just will you just set out the argument so we understand exactly 
what those double standards are and who's accusing whom of them. The, the, the double standards are on the charge against, let's call it the West, if you'll forgive that term, charges that the Western democracies, led by the US, but uh, the UK as well, many Europeans, helped shape the rules after the Second World War, the rules of international order. And the allegation is that they follow them only when it suits them, but call on others to follow them also when it suits the West. And so when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine most recently, two years ago, uh, there was a great call from um, the, the US and Europe for other countries to condemn it. Many of them did in the United Nations, but others said, look, this is a local squabble. Why should we? And I remember uh, one senior woman from the uh, United Arab Emirates saying to me, why should we care about your refugees uh, and your wars when you don't seem to care about ours? So that is the charge, and there's a long history to it. And, and the, the U.S.'s uh, action in Nicaragua back in the 80s is brought up of, as good evidence of when the U.S. did not choose to follow international law itself. The, it's in, the invasion it led of Iraq is, is another. Um, but then you come to Israel's action against Hamas, and many countries saying, look, the U.S. in particular tolerated Israel expanding its settlements into the West Bank, into land that was earmarked for a future Palestinian state and now appears to be to some people breaking many laws of war on, on humanitarian aid and on its, its uh, the number of civilian deaths and casualties that it has caused in, in Gaza. And uh, the, you know, the charge is, look, this is, a, this is hypocrisy. You're just doing it to suit yourself. And how much of it is economics and how much of it is geopolitics in the sense that when David Miliband, the former foreign secretary who now runs the International Rescue Group, was talking about it, he, he was saying he, he had seen this moment in 2022 now, at the start of the Ukraine war, when it looked as though it had united the West but divided the rest. And what it really exposed was arguments about who's providing funding for climate change, what about handling of debt, how much do you think it's an economic backdrop to this, or how much do you think it's case-by-case -case examples of military action, Afghanistan, Iraq? It's, it's, it's that backdrop that's driving that accusation. I think it's neither, in a way. I think it is a big moral charge, uh, sometimes made by countries, including Russia, that Russia, for example, appropriates it, um, but it's full of hypocrisy itself on many fronts. But when I say neither, I think that you do get a, a request now, a demand from many countries to say, look, if the West cares about us, then show it through climate finance, through helping do something about debt relief, though China is obviously even the bigger player there. Just show us that you, you, you take our voices seriously and it is part of a, a global bargain. But the, it is, is more than a, just a response to one particular situation. I think, it, and many of these countries see it now as, if you like, a, a global bargain, and that gets some mystification from Western countries. I'm thinking, if you walk down Whitehall, they see, well, climate change is in one department, and debt relief's in a, in a treasury and the overseas development bit, and that's completely separate from dealing with uh, Ukraine, uh, and completely separate from dealing with, with Israel. And, you know, I think 
the point that, to me, the UK and the US particularly are going to have to realise is that other countries don't see it that way and they're not going to get the support they think they should get by saying this is an offence against international sovereignty. They're not going to get that support unless they take part in that conversation about a wider bargain. But, but Bronwyn and, and Jess and Chloe, please weigh in. Can we, can we take your example of the story of the date, i.e. take the question of the Houthis and particular Egyptian and Saudi non-involvement to this stage. If if Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, were here, he might say, look, Bronwyn, I completely understand the feeling and force of that charge of double standards, but let's just look at what the world's like. When there's a problem, the US and often its allies have to step in to deal with it because other places, you know, Riyadh and Cairo, won't. How do you, how do you deal with that response? They might say that they won't. They certainly have done in the past. They've declined to get involved in these things. But you have Saudi Arabia really now taking a leading part, possibly the leading part, in trying to find some kind of route through the the turmoil between um, Israel and the Palestinians. And I think it is going to be absolutely central to attempts to find uh, both a deal in the short term and, and in the much longer term. And Egypt's economy is being wrecked by this disruption of Red Sea traffic. I think the Red Sea traffic is down about, uh, about about a third, and Egypt relies on those revenues of ships going through the Suez Canal for its economy. So they have a, a reason to be involved. And I think that argument can be made, because the danger, if the US and UK just do it alone, though they do have others, Australia, Canada, Denmark, uh, Netherlands, I think New Zealand, and Bahrain, the only country from the region at the moment involved uh, in the military action. If they say, look, we're doing it as part of the principle of keeping open the lanes of world trade, and this is too important a principle to let go, and we're doing it with regional support as well, then they stop that caricature building up of the West against the rest. Chloe, what do you think? It's really interesting. I think by that measure... um... China should be involved because China is really affected. Its goods have, you know, been blocked from entering the West and Europe. Um, but I'm also, I, I can see, I think you're right that it there is an appearance of the West against the rest. Um, but there's also the question of escalation. And the more countries you get involved in a conflict, uh, the more complex it becomes. Saudi Arabia has taken ages and ages to get to the point where it's on the brink of brokering some kind of peace in Yemen. If it gets involved in bombing the Houthis, that seems to just go out the window. And on the other side, you have more and more calls for action directly against Iran. More and more people are starting to come out and say, why are we playing Iran's game and going after their proxies? Lindsey Graham, a very senior um, Republican senator, um, Jake Wallace-Simons, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, they're calling for uh, the West to stop pussyfooting around and go to direct strikes against Iran. So I think this is all a question of do you take the ball by the horns and get out ahead of the game? Because there's a fear that if you don't, Iran is on the brink of becoming a nuclear power. It's also on the brink of pulling Russia in to defend its airspaces. Once that happens, you no longer have an option. 
of disarming Iran and Iran can do pretty much as it likes. And then on the other side, you've got the question of escalation. So it's it's this very sort of tight balancing act. And I can understand why countries like America and the European Union might be loath to start bringing in more and more countries to the uh, battlefield. I must say, I, I think attacking Iran would be an escalating to a, a real conflict directly with Iran would be a huge mistake. That is taking us towards the Third World War sort of catastrophe that people are, most people, I think, are, are trying very hard to avoid. But I think the strength of this is to say, look, this is about the principle of keeping uh, trade open. Uh, and it's not about Iran. Uh, yes, it's about its proxies. Uh, and uh, I don't honestly think there's an awful lot that can be done beyond degrading a bit of the Houthi capacity. But it's about showing that that principle still stands. Chess, what do you think? Well, it was just something I saw this morning as well, just to emphasise that point of Egypt's economic uh, impact of what's going on in the Red Sea is that, yes, traffic's down by a third and what their their revenue from the Suez Canal has gone down from $804 million last year to $428 million this January. So the economic incentives for them to get involved are pretty high. And I think it says something about the political elements at play within Egypt that they are they don't want to be seen as I think taking sides against the Palestinians where for the first time they have um, the Egyptian leadership has wanted to seem very pro-Palestinian I think for the same reason they were probably uh, there were economic incentives to try and open the borders and allow more Palestinians out of Gaza when the conflict um, started in October and they have resisted doing that again despite economic incentives so I think it just shows that there are other serious forces at work beyond just what's economically viable for or economically uh, attractive for Egypt at the moment. Probably can I just ask you one other element of the story or the picture that you paint which is how to think through the West in particular Washington and London's relationship with Saudi because it's just a few years since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, there, were, there was a period in which the West's position was Mohammed bin Salman is leading a pariah state. We're not comfortable with our relationship with him and them at all. What do you do about Saudi's domestic relationship with dissidents, not to mention women? What about its neighbouring relationship with Yemen? Implicit in your thinking here is establishing, it seems to me, a different long-term relationship between the West and Saudi. And I just wondered whether you'd spell that out, how you think Saudi should be included in the, if you like, international running of things. You start by saying I think it should be included. The relationship is very different from when the US relied on Saudi Arabia for so much oil. That has gone with the US's cultivation of its own energy sources at home. And so the relationship begins to be largely strategic and about trying to achieve some kind of peace in the Middle East, uh, by which I mean that region more more, more widely. Um, there is no need to pretend that, region, uh, that regimes are very pleasant. Um, there is always room to criticize, including openly, their treatment of their people and their view on human rights. But I think they are one of the most important players in the region and and actively working. For example, they still want the deal with Israel that was uh, within reach before October the 7th. Um, and they have, you know, reasonable relations with 
other other Western countries, and you can't say the same for Iran, which is out on a program of trying to destabilize um, the region, building ties with Russia, building ties with China, and so on. So I think there has to be uh, quite a lot of um, engagement and um, respect for the modernization that is happening. Uh, it, it is the, the country is changing very, very fast, um, and many of those. Uh, that, that, that direction of travel is one that we would welcome. And do you think that it's impossible for the West to include Saudi and not alienate irreparably Iran? Yes, I do. I think the deal that China brokered between Saudi and Iran is more than just show. It's actually gone much further than many might think. We have reports of quite a lot of high-level discussions between them, including on things like energy programs. And at the moment, at least, it suits them to tolerate each other and indeed talk to each other. Uh, and Iranian um, officials, which we, we, we talked to at, at Chatham House, uh, um, profess to be relaxed about how Saudi might develop its own civil nuclear power program, for example. So we're a long, long way from the outright antagonism of just a decade ago. So there is a path through this that you describe that's quite optimistic. I'm not going to use that word at all. Um, <laughs> I remember a headline um, ran when I was editor of Prospect magazine of an ambassador, Tom Phillips, leaving. He'd been ambassador, British ambassador to many of these countries. He was just leaving the region and the headline was, there may never be peace. And that is a possibility. And so what everyone is trying to do is avoid that but the the fault if you just stop from trying is that there is not peace right well Bron, i hope you forgive me for going for a little bit of monday cheerfulness <laughs> thwarted absolutely <laughs> on that. um let's go to chloe the asylum seeker who attacked a mother and is now it seems as we record still on the run what does that story tell us yeah, I think uh, everybody will uh, have heard about the asset attack in South London, unless you've been living under a rock. Um, but just a quick recap. Last Wednesday, um, a 35-year-old Afghan refugee, Abdul Ezidi, travelled from the north of England down to South London and through an acid-like substance, sodium hydroxide, we think it was, at a woman and her two children. The woman, it turns out, was his ex-girlfriend. Um, there's a huge manhunt. They haven't found him yet. The police think he may be protected by, possibly by the gang who helped traffic him to the UK. The whole event has raised lots of questions. I have some questions, like about this event, like how do we better protect women from abuse of their partners or former partners or, you know, the availability of these substances? Um, acid attacks have apparently, uh, incidents of acid attacks have risen by almost 70% in the last couple of years. But this is not where the public debate has gone. Where the public debate has gone has been a focus on asylum, the asylum system and the fact that this man was a convicted sex offender and it seems that despite the guidance uh, for asylum, which says that anybody who's on the sex offender register should be refused asylum, he was granted asylum on his third try. And it seems that 
this was at least in some part due to the fact that he claimed to have converted to Christianity and there was a letter from a member of the church backing his claim. Just to follow on from that, yesterday it seems that a church elder speaking on a BBC programme said that there were 40 asylum seekers on the Bibby Stockholm who are also either undergoing the process or have previously converted. And it seems this would be something that would be taken into consideration in their asylum processes. People have raised the fact that the Liverpool suicide bomber from two years ago who blew himself out up outside a maternity unit had also used a conversion to Christianity as part of his asylum claim after he died. There was an investigation that uncovered that he had a Quran and a prayer mat in his house and it concluded that he probably faked his conversion. The Home Office says that the people who decide asylum claims have guidance that tells them not to take the word of a priest as determinative in these claims, that there's lots of other things that play a factor, such as proof of participation in church activities, the timing of the conversion, knowledge of the faith, other congregation members and that kind of thing. But obviously this has stoked all kinds of fury. You've got Nick Ferrari on LBC screaming, I hope you're happy now and blaming lawyers and the church and politicians for this attack. Suella Braverman has weighed in and said that Britain needs to overhaul the human rights, its human rights laws and leave the European Convention on Human Rights. Chloe, you say that it's not determinative, but why is it relevant? No, but that is exactly what it is. So in Afghanistan, where this particular asylum seeker is from, apostasy, which means leaving the Muslim faith, is punishable sometimes by death. It's illegal. Uh, And it's illegal in several countries. One of those is Afghanistan. So that is why they... Oh, I see. So the conversion is not good character. No. The conversion is risk No, no, home. no. That, I mean, I think that would be pretty Islamophobic if they said if you're Christian rather than Muslim, we'd rather have you. I think that would be very, very controversial. It's about his safety. And I think in this case, the argument would be that his, the threat to his life of going back to Afghanistan, having converted to Christianity, would trump the fact that he was on the sex offenders register. Oh, I see. So... I would argue that this is a really good opportunity to look at this very, very broken system and ask questions about whether or not the people who determine whether somebody gets asylum are properly trained, are given enough time, enough resources to be able to make these determinations properly. And so just sort of looking back over the last few years, the cuts to the process of asylum you know we've got so many more people applying for asylum uh, but we've got so many we had over the last 10 years huge cuts to the number of people who were making decisions they it used to be that a lot more people were making about four decisions each a month and now you've got about seven decisions being made a month by a lot fewer people they have started recruiting people again but where you had back in 2011, you had the kinds of people who were making these decisions were trained experts, former police officers, former military people. Now you've got unskilled people who are being trained on the job. And it's much more difficult for people to be able to determine between truth and lies and the kinds of things that you would take into account. So I think the question should be, rather than you know, people like Suella Braverman shouting into the wind about human rights laws, perhaps she should be looking at her own party and their history with 
promises to fix the asylum situation and yet not perhaps funding it correctly or staffing it correctly. Jess, go ahead. Is it right that the woman who was attacked was also from Afghanistan? I don't know. I haven't seen that anywhere. It may be, it may be right, but I, I haven't, they haven't sort of alluded to her nationality in most of the papers that I've seen. But it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there, like I said, there are so many other factors here. You know, mm. the accessibility of these kinds of chemicals, whether or not women are properly protected. So, um, you know, people immediately jump to, to the fact that he's an asylum seeker. I would just wanted to say as well that the on the corrosive attacks, they have gone up year on year, but that's, I think, largely because of COVID and lockdown. They were higher pre-COVID, and then there has been legislation introduced that makes possession of these kind of corrosive substances as well as selling them to under-18s illegal, as well as causing grievous bodily harm, which would be the case here. I have seen So I think that. there has been effort to try and tackle them, but how effective that been. is, I don't know. They're just so widely available, right? You just go yeah, down to exactly. your local supermarket and we're talking about drain unblocker. That's all it is. So it's very, very difficult to legislate around, I think. Yeah, agreed. Bronwyn, what do you think? By one point, it was, uh, I think, a very strong alkali, not an acid, um, at the other end of the pH spectrum. It doesn't make any difference to the woman who has been um, had this thrown at her. And when they talk about life-changing injuries, I so much hope it doesn't mean that she's blind. But that, that I think, has been the implication. I haven't seen confirmation either that she was a girlfriend, simply that they were known to each other and that she was in a refuge hiding from him. Um, but that could be his claim of uh, a relationship or, so, or whatever. I think the focus is rightly on the asylum system. We are dealing with very old principles um, of asylum and of refugees which many, many countries are wrestling with here and whether they fit what countries want to do in differentiating between people they want in and want to give support and succor to and others that they want to keep out. And it is not a an easy problem, but I, I myself would put the weight still there where, where the, a lot of the debate has been as opposed to a protecting women, which is absolutely a cause that also needs attention, but seems to me not the the prime question raised by this this case. Bronwyn, thank you. And Chloe, I know this is a difficult story, and I suspect we're going to learn more about it in the coming days. Let's take a beat, and then we're going to go to Jess's story. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jess, to your story, ADHD in adults. This is specifically a story about treatment for adults who are seeking help with ADHD, retention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm aware that there's a whole other area where children um, are also struggling to access services about this. But this seems to be a story that is very much not leading the news. But when you mention it to people, everyone seems to have a story that they are talking about among them among themselves. And it's not receiving the equivalent attention in the media or among government. I saw a story in the Financial Times at the weekend. And that's what has led me to bring it to the news meeting this morning, which is that Analysis done by that newspaper has found that wealthier adults are driving a very strong increase in demand for drugs to treat ADHD. They found that the number of prescriptions grew at twice the rate for the least deprived 20% of the population as the most deprived 20% of the population. That's based on data from the NHS Business Services Authority, which is a support service for the NHS. And this just raised... More questions than answers for me, if I'm honest, but it's uh, when you're looking at a condition that was only recognised at all in the UK in 2000, it was recognised as a condition among adults only in 2008, and yet now in 2022-2023, you're finding more adult patients being prescribed drugs for ADHD than children for the first time. And you're seeing this incredible boom in demand for services that is not being met and that's been a known problem for a while i've seen reports I, c I can't find a nationwide figure but based on various fois to different hospital trusts you're seeing wait lists of anything from i've seen a kind of a two to three year average possibly up to 10 years in some parts of the uk and that's waiting for an assessment so you go to your gp you try and get a referral then you're waiting for an assessment and after that you're still then waiting to kind of find out if you require treatment and what kind of treatment that could involve that might include medication and this is um, coming at the same time as a global shortage in medication for a for drugs used to treat ADHD. That sort of started around last September, October. Uh, there were promises that supply issues would be resolved by the end of the year. Now they're saying that it's going to be at least April until global shortages of some drugs can be resolved. And I think it is uh, an important topic just to discuss and start looking at because it covers so many areas. It's looking at this huge unmet demand uh, within the UK. You're looking at this huge explosion in in cases and diagnoses in Western countries around the world. And you're also looking at a situation where, again, in the UK, similar to other areas within healthcare, there's very much a two-tier system that's developed, which is what's evidenced by this this story over the weekend in the FT, that while it says more uh, cases of ADHD or more people who have ADHD are found in the, the more deprived areas of the UK. It is those in the least deprived who are getting quicker access to diagnostics and treatment. You, you know, by the way, just when we, the very first piece of data journalism that we did at Tortoise when we started, actually Paul Caruana Galizia did, which was a report in prescriptions of OxyContin and OxyContin-like um, drugs in the UK, thinking that we'd find a pattern that was very similar to the US pattern. And what was really... Of opioids. Yes. And what was really interesting was this incredible clustering of prescriptions, i.e. within certain practices, 
there was a culture of prescription. It was often in response to big socioeconomic challenges in the uh, community of patients. So there was not a NHS-wide pattern. It was much more regional. And what you're describing there sounds something similar. It may be a response to communities of patients and then cultures that grow up in practice. I mean, we should probably have a go at trying to do the same thing. Maybe. I think, we, yeah, I think we should because there was a, a piece that was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry at the end of last year. And among the recommendations there, it's not just about money. They were trying, he was suggesting, or the authors were suggesting, agreed standards on diagnostic assessments. Like That doesn't happen yet, that suggests, which to me, just, as you say, if you, um, if there's a problem with f- accessing services, then obviously you get referred to more independent providers and then keeping on top of the quality of that, diagnos- that diagnostic system and treatment system becomes harder and harder. And unless what this, what this uh, journal paper says is, which if you continue with the status quo as things are, you're just going to get an even more problematic situation down the line where demand keeps growing, supply keeps getting more fragmented and potentially um, of a lesser quality. And you never quite get to a proper understanding of, of what the need is and who is who is and isn't getting it. Um, Chloe, what do you think? I think it's really interesting because particularly the fact that this this demand is being driven by adults. And I think you know, over the last 10 years, there's been really aggressive marketing techniques by the drug makers, ADHD medication, uh, pharmaceutical companies towards adults. And actually, um, from what I understand, it's children who have a much more dire need for these medications, because as the brain develops and neural pathways develop, unless they have this kind of medication, there isn't the sort of space for their brains to develop properly whereas with adults brain development has already happened and perhaps adults could benefit more with kind of coping techniques and different kinds of ways of addressing ADHD other than medicinal so I think it's kind of interesting that it's grown so much within the adult market. Bronwyn um, the way in which this news meeting works is that at the end we all try and make a call on which story should lead the news and the idea is that you can't repitch your own one so if you had to choose taking the Middle East out of the equation this morning, if you took the Houthis and the whole question of um, the, the future of the world, if you like, out of the equation, which between those two stories, between the asylum story and the ADHD story, which would you choose to lead the news? I would go with the ADHD. I think it raises real questions about trends in health, about access to drugs, about monitoring of all that, and about the fairness of access to the, to this treatment. And it's really got a lot of resonance, I think. All right. Jess, what story would you choose to lead the news? I would lead with the Houthis. It's unquestionably going to be the, the story of the week as to how you manage response without escalation, deterrence without escalation, and how and if other countries should become involved. Chloe? Me too. I would go with the Houthis. I think it's just one of these intractable problems. I also I also think that countries like Saudi Arabia are stuck between a rock and a hard place because they have a population that's very, very supportive of the Palestinian cause and probably of the of the Houthis actions. So what the government thinks may be very, very out of line with what their population think. So yeah, I think it's an interesting an interesting subject that has lots and lots of tentacles and will keep playing out. 
to be honest with you, you feel as though any of those three stories could very legitimately lead if you were trying to make sense of the world. That the Houthi story is a story about the West and the world and the risks of this escalation. And I think the very worrying prospect that when Hamas looks at what it did in October the 7th, most things are going the way that Hamas would want in terms of escalation of a problem, regionalization of a problem, not to mention a great deal of death and despair. You might also say the ADHD story is exactly the kind of story that news organizations generally miss, which is it feels like it's a odd and less pressing issue, but it's a deeply human one that is touching so many people. And because it's a system-wide story rather than a singular one, it doesn't really properly investigate it. By which I mean singular, I mean it's in the story of a person. It's the story of so many people. And actually, if we get to grips with A, diagnosis, and B, prescription on ADHD, we've done a great service to a great many people who are trying to figure out the ways in which this affects them and the ways in which the NHS is grappling with this. And then, Chloe, I think you're completely right. I, I understand the response to this particular case, but it's really about the asylum system and particularly given the debate around immigration more generally, and, the, and I think the issues around politicization of immigration, you then have a case like this, which actually forces you to think really fundamentally, not about the politics of it, but about the system, the actual government of it. And that's where the tension should be, the way the thing works, or in this case doesn't. So all of those three would lead. I suspect that I would probably uh, end up um, running it Houthi's ADHD asylum only because asylum is a story that's been with us for a few days and feels like it's a catch up on the story of last week ADHD because it's an underreported story that I think you want to bring greater prominence to and I think Bronwyn's framing of it which is where's Riyadh and Cairo in this story is the way in which you think about how the West engages in the Middle East not just on the Suez Canal but on the whole question of uh peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So that's the way I would handle it. Um, thank you for making time this morning. It's a really chewy uh, morning of stories. So thank you for making time. If you've got thoughts on stories that we're missing or think that there are ways of addressing the news that are probably not as heavy as the conversation we've had today, uh, please do let us know. Just uh, send us a voicemail or an email to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Let's finish up, though, with a really extraordinary moment from the weekend. Yesterday, Laura Koonsberg uh, spoke to Esther Jai, the mother of 16-year-old Brianna, who was murdered in February. You may not have seen it on the BBC. If you haven't, do take a look at it. But Laura asked Esther if she had anything to say to the mother of Scarlett Jenkinson, one of Brianna's killers. And it's an extraordinary moment, really, of dignity and grace. Take a listen. Um... I think that I would like to say that um, if she did want to contact me and she does want to speak, then I'm, I'm open to that. Um, I'd like to understand more how, like, how their life was and what they, they went through. And I also want her to know that I don't blame her for what her child's done. And I also want her to know that it, I understand how difficult being a parent is in this current current day and age with technology and, and phones and 
um, the internet and how hard it is to actually monitor what your child is on. Um, so yeah, if she ever wants to speak to me, I am, I'm here. Tortoise. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.